Hello listeners, it's meteorologist Mike Mahalik of the Weather Lounge. Welcome to part two of our forensic meteorology episode. We'll be listening in to a mock testimony our weather experts might go through in court. The topic is, can ice form at temperatures above 32 degrees? The answer might surprise you. So you'll also want to be sticking around for the cross-examination convincingly performed by our special guest, WeatherWorks CEO Frank Lombardo. To be honest with you, I was even getting a little bit nervous myself listening to that cross-examination. So let's get started. Oh, and don't forget to listen to part one of the episode if you missed it. This is the Weather Lab here at WeatherWorks. Welcome back, everyone. I'm meteorologist Mike Mahalik, and this is the second part of our forensic podcast. And I'm joined with meteorologist Sherilyn Patrick and also Zach Chabala from our forensic team. How are you guys doing today? Good, thank you. How's everything with you, Mike? Oh, it's good. And we're ready. Don't forget me. (laughs) That's right. I was just about to introduce our special guest for this segment, and that is the CEO of WeatherWorks, Frank Lombardo. Frank, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's going to be fun. Okay. So this is what's going to happen in our second half of the podcast. So basically what we're going to do is go over a mock testimony um, that would typically happen in a uh, forensic case that we would do. Sherilyn is going to be the plaintiff attorney and uh, Zach Chabala is going to be the weather expert working for the plaintiff. Our president, Frank, he will be the defense attorney. And uh, I think he's going to be a pretty good defense attorney. What do you think? <laughs> we'll see. Let's we'll see, uh, see if I can crack that expert. <laughs> okay. Okay, so a little background on the case before we get started. So this is a slip and fall case that occurred in New Jersey on Christmas Day. So the plaintiff or the person that is suing is claiming that she slipped and fell on ice and that the contractor was negligent by allowing ice to form. So the defendant in this case is the snow plowing contractor. So our weather expert is working for the plaintiff. So we all know that ice forms at 32 degrees, but sometimes it could form a little bit warmer than that. And it's interesting. And we'll definitely go out and find more as this case continues. So guys, let's just uh, start it off. Sherilyn, I think you're going to start it off here as the plaintiff attorney. Mr. Chabala, thank you for coming here today. We're here to take your deposition in the case of Mary Doe versus Crimson Palace, in which a slip and fall occurred in Morganville, New Jersey on Christmas Day of 2016. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Did I reach back out to you in September of 2017 regarding this matter? Yes, you did. Uh, And what's your understanding of the particulars of this case? Based on what you explained in your letter to our office, the plaintiff slipped and fell on a patch of ice in the parking lot. Great. Now, based on my request, I understand that you produced a certified past weather report uh, on this matter also back in September of 2017. Do you recall authoring this report? Yes, I do. Okay, well, that's just the opening of the case, guys. Um, So after this, there's a part that comes up that, Frank, you could probably help me out a little bit with. 
basically we're going over the credentials of people and i'm not sure how to pronounce this but you can do a better job voir dire and it's the um it's basically uh the qualification section of an expert Uh, think of an expert as just a regular witness but an expert is allowed to provide an opinion so if you're a witness in a car accident and some you can't provide an opinion you just say this is what i saw however an expert provides an opinion i saw the two cars crash and the reason they crashed was because there was snow and ice on the road that's an opinion so mr shabala in this case will likely form an opinion but first we have to qualify him first we have to determine does he really know what he's talking about? Or is he just someone that's showing found off on the streets <laughs> pulled off the street? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny that we go through this section because I remember a case that I was actually a weather expert on, and they had me start all the way in high school. So it was it was quite odd. I, I felt like I should I say I was captain of the defense on the football team Ab- as a qualification. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, you only say that if you were working for the defense, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Sherilyn, let's get off with the uh, voir dire, if I said that correctly. So according to your CV here, which I'll label as Exhibit 1, you are a forensic meteorologist. What is a forensic meteorologist, and how do you even become to be one? So a forensic meteorologist is a meteorologist who reconstructs past weather for a given date, time, and location. Uh, more often than not, it's for legal purposes or for insurance industries. Um, one requires a bachelor's degree in meteorology or atmospheric science, uh, but you can supplement that with advanced degrees, additional classes, and certifications such as the Certified Consulting <laughs> Meteorologist designation from the American Meteorological Society, which I have. Great. And how long have you been working at WeatherWorks in this capacity? About 10 years. Thank you. Uh, if there are no other objections, I'd like to admis- admit Mr. Chabala as a forensic weather expert in this matter. Uh, no objections from me, Your Honor. Okay, so that was the first part of that uh, credential section. Um, now, we did take a, a few uh, assumptions here uh, just for the case about uh, some credentials of uh, Mr. Chabala, as we like to call him in this case. But mm-hmm. um <laughs> From here on out, though, uh, Frank, I think we're going to go into the main testimony. So what is going to happen in this section, and, and, and how is it kind of laid out? Well, I mean, this is the section. This is really where the attorney will typically set the foundation for what Mr. Shabala did. There are no opinions yet. Saves the good stuff for the end. But this is how did you arrive at your opinion. So it's what data did you collect? What scientific evidence did you review? Uh, what kind of charts? Uh, this is where the charts are presented, things like that. Um, so uh, it, it, it's exciting. Uh, this is done in front of a jury. The prior section, the voir dire, sometimes is done outside the jury presence. So the jury is not biased by the qualifications of the expert in often cases. But at this point, everyone is listening. Hmm. Interesting, because I'm trying to remember back to the case where I was on. I feel like the jury might have been there when they were going through my qualifications. 
Um, sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. Sometimes the judge wants them out of the room. Um, and it depends, I think, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But uh, I've been in both, in both instances. And it's usually a lot tougher than what Mr. Shabala had to go through. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we also don't want our listeners to go through uh, <laughs> listening to where Shabala went to school and where, went to high school, and, and how, went what, to how many cases. Who did, you, and, who did you date in 10th grade? Yeah, uh, or, that in and of itself will take 10 or 15 minutes. Or you are in homecoming court. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're not going to do that. Um, but anyway, um, so Sherilyn, I think take it away here. We'll start with the main testimony. Mr. Chabala, how did you come up with your weather analysis for 999 Anyplace Drive in Morganville, New Jersey, for the time period of December 16th to 25th, 2016? I utilized a variety of weather sources surrounding and relating to the incident location. They include official surface weather observations, record of climatological observations, sunrise and sunset times, Doppler radar images, and other National Weather Service products. I'm going to admit your report here is expert as exhibit number two. Uh, can you tell me about the specific weather observations you used for this analysis? Yes, I reviewed official weather data from Lakehurst Naval Air Engineering Station, Belmar Airport, Newark International Airport, Somerset Airport, and the Trenton Mercer Airport. Now, I noticed these sites are anywhere from 15 to 30 miles away from the site of the accident. Did you examine any other types of weather stations in your report that are closer to the accident site? Yes, I utilized five other weather stations called mesonets that were located 10 miles or less from the incident location, as well as another five stations from the private network COCORAS, which stands for Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network at the National Weather Service-run co-op sites. COCORAS and co-op, uh, what type of information do these stations provide? These stations can provide valuable information regarding precipitation, daily snowfall, and existing snow and ice conditions on the ground at approximately 7 a.m. Unlike the ASOS and AWAS stations, these stations only report once a day. However, they provide valuable information closer to the actual incident location. So one final question so that I'm perfectly clear. Are the sets of weather, da weather data that you are using, are they part of the best practices or standards for meteorologists? Yes, absolutely. They, these sets of data are the standard in the industry that are used to reconstruct weather at accident sites or for researching any prior weather events. And I'll break in here a little bit, guys. So you're going over the weather stations that you used um, during your report here and, and all of that. So how, how does this work? Like if you have a location um, and we're trying to figure out what those weather conditions were in Pesla. How are you using this data to, you know, formulate what happened uh, at a particular location? Yeah. So essentially <laughs> you want to create a, you know, a cross section around the incident location. So you have, you know, data surrounding the location. Um, ideally, you know, the closer the data, the better. So it's more representative of the location that's in question. Um, so, you know, we, we mentioned that the, uh, some of the stations were 15 to, to 30 miles away, especially the airport data. That's why some additional data was supplemented that was a little bit closer to the uh, location in question. Yeah, right. So, I mean, we're not just taking a, an airport that's, you know, so 15 miles away and saying, hey, that's what happened here at uh, this particular town. You know, so we'll, we'll definitely get in closer. We'll, we'll take a cross section like Zach was saying 
and we get those, you know, we kind of fill in the gaps to figure out what's happening there. Um, but uh, sorry for the interruption, but we'll get on to the rest of the report here right now. So, Sherilyn. Thanks for clarifying the weather data you utilize. So, you know, now that we're getting into, let's talk about the actual weather conditions. Uh, what did you find in the days leading up to December 25th, 2016? Uh, for your reference here, I actually duplicated and enlarged the following table uh, that will be marked as Exhibit 3 from your report to help the jury follow along. So as you can see, there is a snow to rain event on December 17th that resulted in approximately 1.2 to 1.8 inches of snow, then some rain showers on the 18th and periods of rain on the 24th. High temperatures were fairly mild for the end of December. However, many nights did fall well below freezing, as you could see on the table. And in the hours leading up to the time of the slip and fall, which occurred at 730. Um, at 3.30 p.m., the temperature was in the low 50s under sunny skies with light winds. The temperature gradually fell into the mid-30s by 7.30 p.m. under mainly clear skies and calm winds. There, there was no precipitation that occurred during the calendar day, nor any naturally precipitated snowpack on exposed, undisturbed, and untreated ground surfaces. So what was the exact temperature at 7.30 p.m.? It was 34 to 35 degrees at 7.30. Let me stop you guys there. So, yep. Frank, what is the why are we going over the conditions before the actual time of the incident? Why why is this even important to the case when it's not even the day of the accident? Well, again, this this goes back to the expert setting up what he believes are the conditions or scientific conditions that lead up to his conclusion. Remember, this is all going to come down to an expert opinion. That's why he's the expert, because he can provide an opinion as a, as a witness. So what he needs to do is he's building that foundation. And sometimes it's months. Uh, I've worked on cases where you need to look at weather conditions over a series of months. Um, in this particular case, he's establishing whether or not the ground was wet, whether or not there was precipitation falling, whether or not uh, there might have been drying. Um, so he he's setting the stage. We don't know exactly the stage for what yet because he hasn't quite given that answer yet, but I think he will very soon in the next section. But that that's what he's establishing. He's just building that foundation. All right. Thanks for the clarification, Frank. And uh, so we established that it's 34 to 35 degrees at 7.30 a.m. So, Sherilyn, let's uh, continue. Uh, Mr. Chabala, can we go over your expert opinions on page 10? Sure. So in your conclusion number three here, you indicated that based on photographs of the incident area, uh, that there were puddles as a result of some kind of settlement or grade depression that formed in front of the parking spaces where my client slipped and fell. That's correct. The photographs I examined clearly showed areas where water collected into puddles. Based on that conclusion, would you say that the precipitation events you previously mentioned on December 17th, 18th, and the 24th would have accumulated and formed puddles even long after the given dates? Yes, absolutely. So as a result, there likely was some sort of accumulation, whether it be water, ice, snow, whatever, in these depressions on December 25th. Yeah, objection, Your Honor. She's uh, leading the witness. Zach, you can still answer the question. As stated in my conclusion number four, each morning from December 19th through the 23rd, 
Puddles at the subject property would have been exposed to both air and ground temperatures well below 32 degrees and subsequently formed ice. What were the temperatures from the 19th through the 23rd? On my chart, you could see that on December 19th, the high temperature was 31 to 32 degrees and the low was 24 to 25. On the 20th, the high was 35 to 37 and the low was 14 to 15. On the 21st, the high was 41 to 43 and the low was 23 to 25. On the 22nd, the high was 50 to 52 and the low was 28 to 29. And on the 23rd, the high was 45 to 46 degrees with a low of 29 to 30 degrees. So now in conclusion number five, you stated that even though the air temperature at the time of the incident was 34 to 35 degrees, the ground temperatures were still cold enough to support the formation of ice prior to my client's incident. Can you explain that further? Sure. On clear and calm nights, similar to the evening of the 25th, the ground radiates heat very efficiently. Uh, the temperatures provided in my report are the air temperatures, which are approximately measured five to seven feet above the ground. As a result, the temperature at or near the ground can often be several degrees cooler than the air temperature. And what are you basing this conclusion on? The National Weather Service in Aberdeen, South Dakota, published such an informative article back in 2013, which I directly quoted in my conclusion number five. Uh, additionally, parts of my job responsibilities includes forecasting for a wide variety of clients across the Mid-Atlantic, including New Jersey, where I have to forecast ice formation regularly. I've actually witnessed this phenomenon many times in person and via word of mouth from providing weather updates to our clients. Thank you. So I have no just, further questions. So let me just stop it right there. Uh, I'm sure um, some of the listeners out there are probably thinking to themselves, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> 34, <laughs> 35 degrees. I, I don't even understand what uh, what's going on. It's 32 degrees is a freezing point. That's the end of it. That's, you know, the, the black and white. So, you know, Mr. Chabala explained it somewhat, but Frank, can we go in a little more detail about what, what what's going on here? Why is it 32 degrees at the ground possibly? I doubt it is. Um, no, I'm only kidding. <laughs> You're only saying that you're the defense attorney. This is true. He is the defense. You're asking the defense attorney here. Um, radiative cooling is a, a process in, uh, in the atmosphere that occurs um, uh, when you cut off the source of heating, which is the sun, basically, or daytime. Um, and, you know, as his attorney, uh, Sherilyn, if you want to elaborate more, you can. Um, it's, but, you know, it, you know, you can explain the phenomenon. Basically, the earth cools in the evening. So once the sun set, the ground temperatures are typically colder than the air temperatures. Um, and there are certain conditions that will be favorable for ice formation. There are certain conditions when ice will not form uh, under 35, 35 degree sky. And then there are certain marginal conditions where you really don't know. It depends on the history of that property, where that property is located. Is it shaded? Is it sunny? So there's a lot of variables. And Hopefully, we'll get into a couple of them with uh, with Zach in a few moments. Well, uh, Frank, I, I think you have your chance. You, as the defense attorney, I'm not sure what your name is here. Uh, we can go with Mr. Mo. Mr. Mo. <laughs> That's the name that was given me. Hello, Mr. Shabala. Uh, my name is Mr. Mo, and I represent the snow and ice contractor in this matter. Hello. Uh, got a couple of questions for you. 
Um, I'll be brief, basically, um, but I do want to go over your reports a little bit and some of your conclusions. Um, how many reports do you generally prepare in a year that are similar in nature, slip and fall cases that involve snow or ice? Uh, a couple hundred, I would say generally over 200 or 250 a year. All right. So, um, and of those 200, um, uh, is the uh, plaintiff always your always your client? Not always. Uh, we about do equal for plaintiff and defense. You provide uh, your services, your expertise, and your opinions for both the plaintiff and the defense in these cases. That's um, correct. Are you being paid to testify today? I am. Uh, so the plaintiff is paying you to testify. Yes, that's correct. Okay, so regarding conclusion number three, you stated that there was a settlement grade depression with discoloration within the parking lot. Um, and what photographs are you basing this on? Um, on pages eight and nine in my report, I refer to Google Earth images I obtained of the parking lot area from August of 2013. These clearly show puddling and depressions between parking spaces one and two, where the plaintiff slipped and fell. I was also provided photographs by the plaintiff's counsel taken shortly after the date of incident of the same types of puddling and depressions. And as part of your um, certification that you talked about earlier, uh, have you taken any engineering courses or are you considered an engineer? No, I am not. Uh, have you provided opinions before regarding um, depressions in parking lots or settlement grade? Um, or drainage? No. Then how can you claim that there was one? There was obvious water puddling in between these two parking spots that had been existing for at least three to four years prior to the date of incident based on the Google Earth images and the provided photographs. I understand. Um, but the Google Earth images, are you familiar with the weather conditions that occurred prior to when those images were taken? No, I am not. Are the photographs that were provided to you by the plaintiff, do you know the dates of those photographs and what the weather was prior to those days? Those photographs were taken shortly after the, uh, the slip and fall incident. So, all right. So admitting that these photographs in three and four, uh, in exhibits three and four, uh, let's move on for a question. In your conclusion number four, you state that there were, that that there were any puddles or wet areas, they would have frozen each morning between December 19th and 23rd because the temperature was well below freezing or well below 32 degrees. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. The freezing temperature is 32 degrees. Is that correct? That is correct. Then how is it that you could possibly say that at the time and date of the alleged accident, when the temperature was 34 to 35 degrees, that ice could have formed. As I stated previously, under clear skies and calm winds, which were the conditions at 7.30 p.m., the ground can radiate faster than the surrounding air. So although the air temperature, which is typically measured five to seven feet above the ground, was 34 to 35 degrees, it is within reason that the ground temperatures were cold enough to support ice. Now on your table that you showed me earlier, um, you indicated that the high temperature on the 22nd was 50 to 55 degrees and the high temperature on the 23rd was 45 to 46 degrees. You also indicated that the weather was fairly mild for the end of December. Mm -hmm. Now, do these conditions 
and the 34 to 35 degree temperature at the time of the accident support ice formation at the time of the accident. The radiational cooling that would have occurred leading up to 7.30 p.m. At the, before the time of the accident would have been supportive of the ground temperatures being colder than the air temperatures, allowing ice to form. So do you have any supporting weather data that the ground temperature was actually at or below freezing at the location? Were you there or did you measure the actual temperature of the ground? You're telling me that the ground temperature was cold because of radiational cooling. But do we have any data to support that? I don't have ground temperature data. I was not there at the day of the accident, but it is my professional opinion based on the science of meteorology that weather conditions supported ground temperatures being colder than the air temperature at the time of the accident. All right. Under these conditions that occurred, is there any possibility that ice would not have formed at 35 degrees or 34 or 35 degrees? No. During the course of a deposition, um, it is possible for attorneys to actually ask you a somewhat confusing question. <laughs> so it is acceptable to ask the attorney, I didn't understand the question, can you reword it? <laughs> I couldn't follow it either. I had to think for a second. <laughs> I'm reading my notes here. And, you know, attorneys typically scribble notes as their... So your as, question, is there do. any way that ICE... You answered the question, but... By the way, Sherilyn, you tell him she he already answered the question, asked and answered. Um, <laughs> if you don't understand the question, the proper thing to do is to state, please, can you clarify the question? Yeah. But you answered no. Um, uh, so you can't prove that there would have been a puddle that could have collected water and resulted on ice on December 25th at the time of the accident. Although I was not physically at the property at that time, I evaluated all the available weather data as well as the supplementary documentation from the National Weather Service regarding the difference between air temperature and ground temperature conditions. And due to the clear and calm conditions, it's within a reasonable degree of scientific and meteorological certainty that ice would have been present prior to the plane of slip and fall due to the depression in the parking lot capable of collecting precipitation from prior events and the ground temperature being cold enough to support the formation of ice. A couple more questions and I'll be done. So you're just assuming this based on what you said is your opinion that ice formed at that location. You're really not sure. I'm not assuming. I'm making an opinion within a meteorological and scientific certainty based on my education, experience in the field, and the weather data that I analyzed. Okay, we're all, almost done, Your Honor. How much certainty within meteorological certainty, but how much certainty? Can you please repeat the question? You said you're making an opinion within a meteorological and scientific certainty. How much certainty? 100%, 90%, 80%? Within I'm just trying to determine whether or not ice always forms at 34 to 35 degrees under these conditions. Within a reasonable degree of scientific certainty. All right. Um, let's skip to, is this type of data certifiable? Um, is this so, data certi certified, okay. basically? Let me, let me break in here, guys. <laughs> well, uh, Frank, you're a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, um, very good example of a defense attorney <laughs> with your cross-examination. Uh, He's good. Zach, Zach is doing a great job, by the way. <laughs> fantastic. 
You know, yeah, Zach, I, I, I know Frank is uh, throwing you for a loop with a couple of these questions, but that's yeah. pretty much how it goes within a uh, testimony. You are asked things that sometimes uh, you didn't think about prior to the case. Sure. And you yeah. have to make it up on the spot. But, you know, think about Frank's job here, though. He's trying to prove that, you know, you know, maybe that didn't freeze. Maybe it was just water. You know, he's trying to. Just trying to give the jury a little bit of uncertainty. Yeah, a little bit to think about. So maybe the jury's going to say, you know what? I don't know <laughs> if, you know, the, the science here is actually going to be accurate enough to predict that ice on the ground. So that's what Frank is trying to uh, accomplish here. So now we're on to the data. Um, is it certifiable is what the next question is that Frank is going into. So. Frank, take it away again and be easy on our buddy Zach here. I will. I will. <laughs> Only a few more questions, Your Honor. Okay, I'm almost done. You know how many times I've heard that in court? I'm almost done. <laughs> almost and an done. Hour, hour, hour later, I'm still there giving testimony. Um, <laughs> is this type of data certifiable? Can you certify this type of data? So. The ASOS and AWOS data, the COCORAS data, and the co-op data are all certifiable through the National Centers of Environmental Information. Uh, the data is quality controlled and utilized by government weather forecasters and scientists via uh, a station called MATIS. Uh, MATIS stands for Meteorological Assimilation Data Ingest System. This system utilizes certifiable and non-certifiable weather sources um, and their model output. Um, as I testified earlier, um, and these data sets are part of an accepted standard meteorological practice in the industry to construct weather uh, data at accident sites. All right. Uh, let's, let's summarize for you. <clears throat> so just to summarize, you were not at the incident location. That is correct. You weren't there on the date of the incident. You weren't there uh, uh, days leading up to the incident. You did not do a site inspection. Uh, you were never there. Correct. There's a difference between the air temperature and the ground temperature, but you do not have any data from the site to prove that, only an opinion, correct? Correct. And you indicate that the ground could have been at or below freezing, correct? That is correct. You're also not an engineer, correct? I'm not an engineer, correct. But you're making an opinion regarding the depression in the parking lot. Lastly, you indicate that the data that you use, some of the weather sources were not certified, correct? While it may not be considered certified through the National Centers of Environmental Information, the certifiable data only means that the data has not been altered or tampered with. Even the certifiable data has a margin of error. So the certifiable data and the non-certifiable data both have slight margin of error. Thank you very much, Mr. Shabala. I have no further questions. Okay. Well, that was quite interesting, I got to say. Um, <laughs> does our plaintiff attorney have anything else to say? I, I don't think, right? I think we're pretty much wrapped up. Uh, we can end it here. <laughs> These things can go on cross-examination back and forth for, I mean, the one deposition I had was going back and forth for about two and a half hours. You know, you would think they would just be able to finish up and then the one attorney would ask a question and then it turned into this whole rabbit hole. And <laughs> Sure. So for purposes of and our listeners out there, I don't think we want to go through a two and a half hour 
uh, <laughs> deposition, deposition yeah. on, on, on a uh, case here. Um, but uh, we just kind of wanted to give you a little bit of a taste of what it would be like for one of our weather exter- experts to be on the stand and taking and having testimony in, in for a case. So um, I thought it was quite interesting. Uh, this is an interesting case with the uh, air temperature above uh, the freezing point and ice still can form in some cases. So um, this was one where there was, uh, you can see there's several arguments at, on both sides. He wouldn't cave. The, the, uh, Zach Shabala would not cave. Um, <laughs> and that's he, the idea as a weather expert is that you're supposed to be representing the party that hired you. So you're going to be uh, strict with the weather facts, but you're also going to form an opinion based on whether you're working for plaintiff or defense or some other kind of neutral party. All the opinions are accurately based on science, Mike. Um, and uh, Mr. Shabala's uh, opinions uh, were ones that I provided, that Sherilyn has provided <clears throat> in court, in real courts of law. Um, and I had a judge once actually tell me, what do you mean ice can form at 35 degrees? <laughs> and he was, he was, he totally biased the case because he just right. came right out and told me that I couldn't talk about it because I was talking about ice forming at 35 and 36 degrees. Everybody knows ice forms at 32. So it's not it's it's a common situation that we encounter in court. Yeah, that's interesting. I can't believe the judge would do that. And uh, he's supposed to be a judge, an impartial judge. Correct. Mm, uh, no. <laughs> so that's quite interesting. Uh, one part of the uh, testimony. Um, that I wanted to ask you guys about is uh, at one point, I think uh, Frank said, uh, you know, an objection, objection, your honor. And, but then it said, you could still answer this though. I I didn't quite understand that. If there's an objection like that, wouldn't that say like, Oh, he's not supposed to answer that question or how I I objected to the, the, the form of the question that Sherilyn presented. Um, She was leading the witness, meaning she wasn't asking a question, but she was saying, so there was likely some accumulation in these depressions, as opposed to saying, were there accumulations in those depressions? Okay, I understand. She was putting words in the mouth of the witness. I objected that it was leading the witness, basically. Uh, typically, the judge would say sustained or overruled, and then um, Sherilyn would answer and say, you can a- answer the question. And that's what she did. So we just we left the judge's part out. <laughs> oh, that's OK. Well, guys, I think that about wraps it up uh, for our mock testimony here that we had this afternoon with, as a weather expert. So. Thanks, everybody, for being here again. Thanks uh, to Sherilyn and Zach uh, for being here during the first segment of the Forensic Podcast here. And, uh, and of course, thank you, Frank, for being our special defense attorney. So We'll see what the jury decides. Yeah, see what the jury <laughs> decides, of course. Our listenership will, will, will say what our, uh, uh, how our podcast is doing. So, um, again, thanks, everybody, for listening out there. Um, again, this is the Weather Lounge, and we have a new episode every two weeks. So please come back and visit um, and listen to our episodes about weather topics, whether it's 
forensic meteorology, or it could be more in the line of uh, snow removal, snow and ice removal, or more in the line of just uh, weather phenomena in general. Um, but um, again, come visit our podcast, and uh, we also are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, all those places. And as always, visit us at weatherworksinc.com. Um, where you can find out what WeatherWorks does in the weather industry and how we can help all of our clients. So thank you everybody for listening and please come back next time. Has your life or property been impacted by the weather? Are you involved in legal cases or claims? Turn to WeatherWorks, the experts in weather-related litigation. Our staff of certified consulting meteorologists have produced thousands of past weather reports for the insurance and legal industry. If your case involves personal injury, property damage, loss of business, workman's comp, or other weather-related matters, we are your experts. For more information, visit pastweatherreport.com or call us at 908-867-8350. When you think weather, think WeatherWorks.